Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 447 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Martin Waits talks to Doug Johnston about learning crime writing on the job, adopting a female pseudonym and the joys of writing Daleks. Martin Waits was born in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. After working as an actor for several years, he became a writer and has written over 20 novels, most of them crime. He wrote the critically acclaimed Joe Donovan series, won the Grand Prix du Roman Noir for Born Under Punches, and The White Room was a Guardian Book of the Year. He also wrote eight internationally best-selling thrillers under the name Tanya Carver. Most recently, he has written the Tom Kilgannon trilogy set in Cornwall. So, Martin Waits, hi, how are you doing? I'm not so bad. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, I'm really interested, like, you, you've, you like, I guess, would you just call yourself a veteran writer these days? You've been going... <laughs> I've started this off well, haven't I? Yeah, have. That's great. Yeah. A veteran. Yeah, right. no, that's... Well, it's... That's, tw- do you know... It's 25 you know, years, right? It's 25 years, it I guess. It's 20, 25 years since I started, you know, so I suppose... Oh, God, I was just going to say that terrible joke, you know, I'd, I'd have got, I'd have been out for murder by now. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, you know, just thinking about being a veteran, I went I went to a party a few months ago with, with a younger generation, at least one generation younger of writers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was very much kind of, oh, you know, oh, look who's with us. Because is he still alive? <laughs> You know, and it's oh god, was, and so we went out for dinner afterwards, and it was very much kind of make sure somebody's sitting next to him at all times. You know, we don't want him choking. Yeah, it's like somebody it cut, makes somebody cut your food up, cut his food up for him. Check check what he orders. <laughs> cut his food up, and if he calls his grandson and tries to give you fifty p for sweets, just nod and say yes. You know, it was that kind of thing. It was kind of oh man, and I just thought, God, I've still got my own teeth. Why are you know it's. <laughs> I don't feel, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I still feel like, you know, I I, I know nothing. That every time I, I sit down to write, you know, I, I'm constantly surprised by how little I know about doing it well. <laughs> and, I mean, that could just be me. You know, other people who have, after 25 years experience might have, have you know, learned something. But no, it's just kind of all I see is how little I still know about it and how much I've still got to learn. I've managed to chance my arm for 25 years in the same business. And it's the only thing I enjoy doing sometimes. And it's the only thing that I'm kind of capable of doing. So, you know, the fact that I'm still here when, you know, there's a lot of people who I started out with who who aren't. I don't mean they're dead, or some of them. But I mean, you know, I, I just mean that, you know, they've kind of, it's not worked and they've given up. Yeah, yeah, I get that sometimes. Well, I, I, every time a new book comes out, I think I just think to myself quietly, "Still in the game." <laughs> exactly. You know, it's just um, you know, I was I, a few years ago. I was having I was having dinner with Mark Billingham, and we both had new books out at the same t- time. And you know, it was just you know, he said, "Well, it was just when we'd had our books accepted by the publishers, right?" You know, and and he you know said, um, "So yeah, you, your book's been given the okay, yep." My book's been given the okay, yep. And, you know, he just said, well, we've dodged a bullet again. And it is, you know, it's kind of, you know, one day we're going to be rumbled, but not today. So, 
so yeah i just think you know i've i've just managed to have a, a semblance of a career for 25 years just by keeping my head down and keeping at it really but you know it's it's when you sort of think about the alternative of i mean i don't know what else i could do I genuinely, literally, honestly don't know what else I could do. Yeah. In in between, you know, writing novels, I've done other things, like like you've done bits of journalism. Mm-hmm. See, all those things I'm not trained for, but you can just blag your way into. You know, I was the true crime correspondent for Bizarre magazine. <laughs> which <laughs> That's a good gig. <laughs> it's a, it was a great gig. It was really well paid as well, you know. And, um, you know, I mean, that was, it was just, it was the time when you could do things like that. I was a, I was a writer in residence in a couple of prisons. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, I ran workshops with socially excluded teenagers in Essex, of which there was no shortage. <laughs> you know, so I would just do things like this, you know, and, and it just, people would, you know, your word kind of gets round. Yeah. That, you know, um, that you do it and you just get phone calls from it. So I guess that was combining that with, with writing novels was became my proper job for for 20 odd years. Yeah. Were you writing for a long time before you were published? I mean, it was that, we're talking about the Stephen Larkin series, which were like yeah. sort of noirish crime novels, you know, about a journalist set in, New, in Newcastle where you grew up. Uh, yeah. And, and how did that come about? Was it a long, a long period of, of gestation? It took about five years. Right. Five years from me having the idea uh, of of the book to actually seeing it published. And it was just kind of five years of, of learning on the job. I mean, it was the first novel that I wrote, and it was the first thing that I had published, which, you know, everybody tells me now is really rare. <laughs> yeah. But I think it was just pig-headedness on my part. I just thought, no, I've written a book that's going to get published. And, um, oh, well, we think it's not right. Well, I think you're not right. You know, and it was just, <laughs> you know, it just kind of, but I mean, I, I did kind of learn while I was doing it. It went round, it, it had two agents and it went round, I think, every publisher going. I mean, the first agent that I, I sent it to, you know, it was just kind of getting the writers and artists yearbook thing, yeah. looking to see who, who would be interested in a crime fiction novels. So when I had some chapters together, I sent it to an agent who, who will remain nameless. And she said she loved it and she was going to represent it. I said, great. So I've got an agent then. She said, yeah. She said, if you just finish the novel and then send it to me and then we're away. So I finished the novel. I was really excited about this by this time. And I was living I was living in an attic in Clapham at the time. I was working in a pub and I'd, I'd just done some commercials so I didn't have to do anything else. I got the pub job just, just to meet people because otherwise I'd have just been a recluse. Because yeah. I ended up with long hair and a beard. And I, I and I've... I found a beanie hat in the bottom of the wardrobe from whoever had been there before me <laughs> and had to put that on so that I, when I sat at the keyboard, my hair didn't just fall into my eyes. So I looked like a recluse. So I thought, you know, get a haircut, go and get a pub job. It's just just so you've got somebody, you know, you've got contact with the outside world. And so, you know, I did that. But all the time I was I was writing and I gave, I sent the agent this book when I'm finished. And I got this message left on the answer phone in those days. And she just said, this is the worst book I've ever read. And I can't, <laughs> I can't represent you. <laughs> and so, 
you know, I thought, yeah, you've taken the coward's way out. You've, you've left an answer phone message when you knew I wasn't going to be in. So I phoned her the next day and I said, what do you mean this is the worst? I said, this isn't the, this can't be the worst book you've ever read. She said, well, you and I clearly differ on that. I said, but I've, <laughs> I've rewritten it. I've improved it. She said, well, you might think so. Wow. So, you know, she just said, oh, it's horrible and it's violent. I said, it's a crime novel. You know, what, what, what do you expect? And she said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not. I said, so, okay, fair enough. So you're not my agent now, I take it. And so I just went back, you know, to the artist, artist, the writer's handbook thing and started at A and just phoned people up again and pestered them into reading it. Yeah. And this, this editor then said, you know, well, I like it, but it's too long. And I said, well, you know, she said, what well, takes some of the things out? She said, no, no, the writing is, is too long. She said, you need to edit down the writing. So I said, well, show, show me what you mean. Mm. And so she did. She edited a couple of chapters, and I just got them. I just looked at them and thought, these, these aren't edited. These have just got a red pen gone through them. <laughs> and then I re- and that was just kind of, I realized then about tightening up writing. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, and that was, and she said, right, if you can do the rest of that, then, you know, we'll, we'll talk again. So I did, you know, I, I, I sat there, you know, and I would, I would finish in, um, finish and I was working in this, this telemarketing company then. So I would finish there. Sometimes I'd sit in the pub for a couple of hours with my own red pen, just going through and then I'd type everything up. It yeah. was about a hundred pages less at the end, the first yeah, yeah. novel. And, but it was kind of invaluable because it was like, oh my God, this is how you edit. Yeah. I, I had, I had some very similar experiences with, my first editor at Penguin was exactly the same, and she bought the manuscript and then sent it back to me, edit like you know with the edits, and I was like, I was absolutely mortified. Yeah, and I was like, oh, wait, you bought this, and then you're basically destroying it. But then as I went through, it was like, yes, that makes sense. Yes, I totally get what you mean. <laughs> and it's it's weird when you get that light bulb moment. Like I, you know, I've taught like editing classes before, and sometimes people are just like, what? And it's like, yeah, you can cut like. I don't know, 20,000 words out of this, no problem. And they just look at you go like as if you're mental and then you show them and they go, oh, all right, yeah, okay, great. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, that was, and it was a great lesson because, you know, they, they said straight, you know, I handed in and then I thought, well, I'll not hear anything for ages. And it was about a fortnight later, they said, we'd like to offer you a two book deal. Wow. Could, could you write the second book in nine months? And I thought, yeah, yeah. of course I can. <laughs> sure. It's taken me five years to do this one. No problem. So, you know, that's what I did. Um, I ended up in bed with nervous exhaustion. Really? Because, yeah, because I was doing the job during the day and then I was coming home at night and I just had, you know, uh, just, you know, my first daughter then. So I would, I would spend time with her um, and then the second one was born as well. So, you know, so sent, spent time with the both and put them to bed sit down at about half past nine and start work. Yeah. And then, you know, I'd work through it till past midnight and then I'd be up at half six the next day to to go in and, and do this job that I hated. I'm kind of interested in, because you, you said you were living in like Clapham at the time, and but obviously mm. the books are set in Newcastle or around that area, but it's um, where you grew up. So it's a place you knew really well, but I wondered if that distance was useful, if you like you were writing about it because you weren't there anymore. Well, I mean, you're right about putting distance between where you're writing, if you know, and and where you're setting it, because I mean, I don't think I could have done that if I'd been living in Newcastle then. Still, you know, you need that kind of quiet to to recreate the place that you're talking about. 
Yeah. You know, you, rather than actually being there thinking, oh, I'm going to go down and have a look at this tonight. And, oh, this is where I'm going to set this there. Right. OK, I'm going to just sit and write, you know, rather than, you know, it's like you need that distance to actually be able to sit and put that down and, mm-hmm. and understand it more. Recreate the city or the, the environment in your own mind. And that's, you know, and I, I also, and I chose Newcastle because, um, I mean, obviously, because it, I didn't think it was particularly well represented at the time. Yeah. You know, because you you had, I mean, what I, I was, I really didn't like British crime fiction. I hadn't found anything that I'd really enjoyed at the time in British crime fiction. Or, you know, that, that I saw in contemporary British crime fiction, the way that I was excited by what the Americans were doing at the time, which was, you know, there was a sense of, realism about it there was a sense of i recognize this world that they're writing about that people like like james lee burke or um sarah paretsky or yeah i'm, I'm just looking at the bookshelves to see who else you know, who was just kind of starting at that walter mosley and people you know yeah, yeah and it was kind of i i recognize this world that they're talking about even though i'm not in that country mm-hmm. and i don't recognize the world that i live in in British crime fiction at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And so I thought, wouldn't it be great if you can take that kind of regionalism that they're doing and that noir sensibility and put it in a a British regional setting. Yeah. And that was kind of that was another light bulb moment. I had that idea at the same time as everybody else did at the same time. You know, that was just like John Harvey did it and Ian Rankin did it and Val did it. Yeah. And it was like, oh, I'm not that original after all. <laughs> And I was just kind of coming in on the tail end of them as well, you know, so it was kind of, oh, right, yeah, he's another, here's another um, British crime writer trying to transplant that American thing. It's like, yeah, when I started out, I wasn't another, you know, it's taken me that long to be published (laughs) that it was quite, I thought it was quite an original idea, you know. And I guess, did you you have no idea at the start that it was going to be a series? I mean, you were obviously a big crime fiction fan, but, I mean, and that sort of thrives on the, you know, the series set up, or was it something that you always had in mind? No, I, I always wanted it to be, and, and I right. think that, I mean, I think I kind of overdid it a bit. And it was kind of, you know, you've got to have the noir hero conventions, and and I've I've since come to realise you you don't need as many as I put in. Right. Um, you know, you don't need a dead wife and a dead son and um, an ex girlfriend who you're just about to get back with who gets killed in the first novel. But, you know, and I fell into every single trap and every single cliche for that with the Stephen Larkin books. But, um, you know, and I, I kind of, I've always said, you know, that um, I sometimes wish that the first three books had never been published because yeah. I, I was kind of learning how to do this in public. You know, there was, a, there was a kind of public record of me learning how to write. And I don't think it was till the fourth one that I actually thought, I think I've learned something here. I think this is a proper book now. Born Under Punches in the White Room were kind of the two books that I think I became a writer to write. Yeah, okay. Because, you know, I'd wanted to write about the miners' strike because that was something I felt had been misrepresented. And I also wanted to write about Newcastle in the 60s and the story of Mary Bell, who was, you know, when she was 11, killed two uh, toddlers. Because that happened about half a mile away from where I lived, you right. know, and it was, it was, you know, you kind of grew up with, with that on the doorstep, literally. Mm-hmm. And also with what T. Dan Smith was doing to Newcastle in the 60s. It was, a, it was kind of a town planning noir. 
with a child serial killer in it. Is that how, it you, was... is that how you sold it to the bullet? It's a yeah, time planning yeah. noir. Exactly. <laughs> they bit your hand off. Exactly. I told my editor that, and she just kind of put her head in her hands. Yeah, and we'll keep, we'll keep that quiet, Martin. <laughs> yeah, and you know, but it was it was something that I I just wanted to write, and after that, I kind of read reached a, a crossroads, and I thought I either write a series and just be a crime writer or I keep going with these um, clearly unprofitable but critically successful books (laughs) 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 about kind of the secret history of the Northeast, you know. Hmm. And so I I thought, well, I can write a crime series and I can put everything that I want into that Mm -hmm. and still, still make it, you know, enjoyable for me. So I wrote... I created the character of Joe Donovan and wrote The Mercy Seat. Yeah. And I I did four four Joe Donovan novels. I would have kept going had they been you know had had the publisher done a better job with selling them. Yeah. <laughs> it strikes me yeah because like those those books are like more like cuz like you mentioned Born Under Punches and The White Room <clears throat> were kind of like were different I guess when the first three Stephen Larkin books and they were more about mm. I mean, there were kind of elements of historical fiction, effectively, in them, but also kind of the social commentary you, you're talking about, which you're kind of, which is always in your writing. But that seems to have come in more into the Joe Donovan stuff, like you talked about race and things like that for the first time. And yeah, that's that's it, you know, because I wanted to use that not just as a as a platform, because I think if you do that, you know, you may as well be making a documentary or, yeah. or writing a, a piece of journalism, but you can't not be involved in in politics whether they're pol- pol- party political politics or social politics or racial politics yeah. if you're writing about you know contemporary issues or contemporary people because it, it plays a part in your life and then you became someone else right you became Tanya Carver okay I did yeah that was it was it was it started off as a kind of dare really you know with um really yeah, the, the publisher was, you know, cause I, I went to see my old editor who was now, you know, very high up in, in the different publishers and just said kind of, you, you, you know, what are you looking for? You know, I'll do it. And um, he just said, we, we want a real high concept female thriller writer, like a, a British Karen Slaughter or Tess Gerritsen. Right. So, you know, it's, it's the acting thing. You know, you you always say, yeah, I can do that because yeah, you can yeah. learn afterwards. Yeah, you know, you can learn to be a, a high concept female thriller writer. Yeah, if you're a free, it, if you're a freelance of any description, the, your answer to everything is yes. So I said I could do it, and that became the surrogate. You know, which which was obviously under a female pseudonym, Tanya Carver. But it, it was, I I kind of looked at it as as say, you know, like the old Pulp Fiction writers. Yeah. Um, who I think only there's, there's only kind of Lawrence Block still around now yeah, from yeah. that that generation, where you know they they do a crime novel one week and a a romance novel the next and a pirate book after that and then a um, you know a porn book a soft porn book from that you know all under different names and I just looked at it in in that way I thought well this is I'm writing this book under this name so i'll write as this person yeah and these are the things that you know it's you know and i knew when i was veering into martin territory and when i was you know veering too far away from tanya territory interesting 
and you know so it it just and I don't I couldn't explain how but I just got the feeling you know that this is not right no no go on take that back again you that's that's a Martin book and that's not what we're writing here <laughs> but you were sort of I mean there was I mean they were really successful right? it was eight novels this time yeah. you cover and then um, and so with that there was there were more commercially success, successful but they were also they're kind of more into horror if you like yeah. thrillers but there's an element of horror in them as well which you've always been a huge fan of horror right oh god yes so, yeah <laughs> so I just wondered if that was conscious when you sat down as Tanya Carver that you're like, well, like I've done this noir thing and now I kind of doing these thrillers and and if I'm going to try and make them slightly more into the into the horror genre. Well, yeah, because I mean, you would think that 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 crime fiction and horror would be streets apart because one is the ultimate rationalist novel. You know, something a crime has been committed, and we have to find out who and why did it. Yeah, you know that's that's kind of the old you know, and it's rationalist, and you can't say oh ghosts did that. No, they didn't. Um, no, no, people did that for because they had something to gain from it. I lived, you know, I lived in Hertfordshire by this time, so I just you know go for a drive and just find these really bleak places and think <laughs> this this screams crime novel. Yeah, yeah. Or this this is you're almost in M.R. James territory yeah, with yeah. some of it. So it was kind of the place that suggested itself at first, you know, with with like where the the climax of of the surrogate happens is, you know, it, it was kind of a real desolate place. You know, and I mentioned that somebody who'd been helping me with with some of the research and <laughs> she said was, "Oh yeah, I went to a funeral there, on the beach." <laughs> I thought, yeah, I'll bet you did. You know, <laughs> so you know, and and the yeah, and it just kind of became that, you know, and it was, you know, later on it was just kind of pushing different buttons. You know, it was like, oh, this, you know, there's a big abandoned house. Clearly, it's it fe- it should feel like a haunted house, and that was. It just kind of crept that way, I think. You know, this yeah. kind of much more horror and gothic kind of, of approach to it. I mean, is that is Tanya Carver dead now? Are you ever going to go back that way, or how do you feel about it? Well, if you'd asked me a couple of months ago, I'd have said I'll never go back to Tanya Carver. But I was having a chat with somebody the other day, and we were just, just talking about the Tanya series. And, you know, and I was kind of saying, oh, it's, it's dead and gone, that's it, as far as I'm concerned, you know. That was that was a closed chapter, and then the more that we were talking, I thought, do you know? I think I might have an idea for another Tanya book, <laughs> and I thought, oh, I thought it might have to be kind of initials now because I don't think the climate is right for, you know, me to be a Tanya, so it would probably be T A Carver or something, you know. But but then and it was just kind of not from the series, but I just thought with the kind of concerns or, or the kind of the way that the, the narrative would be skewered it would be better as a Tanya novel than a Martin novel. Okay but meantime you've been writing the the Tom Kilgannon books right so uh, so the old religion came out in 2018 that was the first one right it's been three and yeah. these are kind of like folk horror and but yep. also kind of crime novels at the same time so it feels like a kind of culmination of everything that's gone before a little bit how do you it, feel it about is them? kind of it's sort of the ultimate martin white's book you yeah. know if if anybody's been keeping track <laughs> you know i i pitched the old religion as brexit noir meets the wicker man <laughs> Surprised that wasn't on the front cover. Well, I know, you know. I mean, I mean, who who would be who would fail? I mean, I, I was interviewed on on Radio Four about it, 
and they loved it. You know, the Brexit wall, which the Wicker Man, brilliant. That's, oh, yes, that's that's what we're going with for this feature. And so I started using that all the time after that. And in the end, my editor just kept saying, you know, judge your audience a bit better. <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody that you talk to is Radio 4, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, it's set in Cornwall because I mean, I moved down to the southwest a few years ago, yeah, and started going to Cornwall a lot. And again, it was just somewhere that that spoke to me. There's something dark and primal about Cornwall, and you can feel it when you're there. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I'm going to try and tap into that. And so, so that's when it veered into folk horror completely. Yeah, and did you find it interesting writing in a sort of rural rural setting as opposed to urban? Because it, it strikes me, I mean, it's, it seems absolutely obvious that that's a great place for horror and crime because I've written mm. about, you know, remote places in Scotland as well. And it's like, and it seems so obvious that, that other people don't see it. Do you know what I mean? It just seems like that's like tailor-made for that kind of weirdness. Oh, completely. You know, and I mean, I, I think, you know, I think people are starting to, to recognise that more now. But I, I think it was it was just always... It was one of those those kind of boundary. I would say unspoken, but it was spoken quite a lot, really. That you know, you do the the noir stuff in the city, you do the cosy stuff in the country, yeah. And it's just not that at all. You know, I mean, the countryside is the rural areas. It's red in tooth and claw. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it's it's the perfect setting for for horror and for crime. I mean, the 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 Gravedigger song, the third one in the series. It just kind of confronts the far right trying to appropriate English or British folklore as the kind of golden age of the past. Yeah. You know, to, to try and, and recreate that. So, you know, I've got characters playing as, as Punch and Judy in it. And as the 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 Mary Lewid, the the you know, the the skull horse. Yeah. That kind of goes from door to door, you know, and it's and you know, just things that when you actually put them you put them in a horror novel and they don't look out of place you put them in a crime novel and suddenly that becomes interesting i think yeah you've also finally eventually written for doctor who right i mean because as a kid you were like massively into kind of i guess the better commas pulp culture like comics science fiction horror all that kind of stuff you're always a massive kid well i know i know (laughs) okay and and now you know he's doctor who fan but how so how did that came about you've written a couple of audiobook Stories, right? Well, audio plays, really. Audio plays, right, okay. it's, Yeah, it's for a company called Big Finish, who've got the um, the BBC licence yeah. to do uh, spin-off media in audio. So what they do, quite brilliantly, is, you know, as soon as, as um, the Doctors finish on TV, or, or all the characters finish on TV, Big Finish signs them up and keeps the stories going. Yeah. So I, I've done, um, I've been working for Peter Davison, the fifth doctor Great. and his original companions and it's just been an absolute blast you know i mean i i, I want to keep going you know i mean i've i've said when peter capaldi or if peter capaldi does big finish you know i have i have told this is um, probably why i haven't heard from them about it i have told the producers i will kill to write for him <laughs> so <laughs> But you know, it it was just, and then it was just, you know, when I when I when I wrote the Daleks one, the first I was sitting sitting at the laptop, and the first time I wrote the word exterminate, 
<laughs> it was I I just thought that's you know it was it was the first scene really you know um, and I just wrote exterminate and I just had to get up and dance around the room <laughs> you know <laughs> which and and, and I just and I, I texted Jamie my wife you know because was away somewhere and I said guess what word I've just written and she just said does it mean to kill by any chance <laughs> I said, yeah it could do and that was it I couldn't work for the rest of the day because I'd written <laughs> you know I, that was just it I thought nothing is going to top the fact that I've just had a Dalek say exterminate you know so <laughs> so that was yeah it, it was just such a a fanboy thing but that sort of thing's great. I mean, I I love. I mean, I'm I'm a huge. I, I don't. I never really understand people who are s- snobbish about genre or about you know or about high and low culture. I'd never really understand the distinction between these things. Do you know what I mean? My favourite writers are ones that will like like you that will basically say someone says, "Do you want to write this thing?" You go, "Yeah," and like mm. give it a go because I don't understand how some people might think. Well, this is high art or low art or whatever. It's all just it's all just stuff you've made. It's all just being creative, right? Absolutely. You know. I mean, I I. Get well. I get and have got and will continue to get really annoyed by that. Um, and I think it's just it says more about the person who's saying it than yeah. it does about the work itself. But yeah, I mean, I you know, I do, I do get annoyed about that. You know, the the whole high and low culture approach. Because I mean, there are, there are only two kinds of writers. There's good ones and bad ones. Yeah. And you shouldn't even dismiss the bad ones. Because you can often learn, if you're learning to write, just as much from the bad ones as you do from the good ones. And it's it's one of those things. It's like politics, you know. You start in the centre and you go to the left and the right, then the far left and the far right. And eventually you meet back round at the back where they're just really horrible and nasty. <laughs> and I think it's the same with, with writers. You know, you start middling writers and you say, the very good, the very bad. And they meet round to someone and you just think, I don't know if this is awful or a work of genius. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so you can never be too quick to judge, I think. That was Martin Waits in conversation with Doug Johnston. You can find out more about Martin on the Royal Literary Fund website. And that concludes episode 447, which was recorded by Doug Johnston and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode 448, in the final part of our series on the theme How I Write, Royal Literary Fund fellows reveal how they cope with the urge to procrastinate touching on issues such as background noise, the usefulness of deadlines and the perils of having a room with a view. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org. Thanks for listening.